0: So I'll give you all Pauline W. from Newport, Kentucky. Cool. I'm Pauline. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen Family Groups, and I am tickled to death to be here. What a wonderful, wonderful group and what a wonderful, wonderful theme, putting the pieces together. I think that's just uh, a fun way to approach recovery. And I know the two of you shared what that means to you. And I was reflecting as I was sitting there and I thought, you know, that means a lot to me too, because I don't know about your experience in recovery, whether it was AA or Al-Anon, but I was feeling pretty broke up when I got to this program. And so the program of of Al-Anon has helped me get myself back together into what Pauline was before she walked in the doors and then my higher power improved upon that I hope and has uh, made me a little bit better than I was before I walked in these rooms. Um, I have to give a special thanks to Barbara for inviting me here. It's a special uh, blessing to get to see Barbara and Dick again. I met them last year or last fall and and Bill and his wife and uh, old friends from columbus georgia and uh, new ones that i'm meeting this weekend you know there's no place where that happens except in the rooms of recovery and that to me is is just such a wonderful wonderful gift to be treasured and honored so uh thanks for making this all possible and thanks to the committee for putting this all together i know how much work that is i was Telling the girls we're getting ready for our convention and I'm in my Doris Day mode. I'm que sera, sera. (laughs) Except at home I sing it, but since there's a microphone, I'll hold back. But uh, it's a lot of work, so uh, thanks for all that you do. Okay, a little bit about me and a little bit about those those princess items. Uh, First, we'll take care of the princess items since my friend Bettina brought them up. Thank you very much. Um, my One of my sponsees thought that it would be cute because at our area assembly, we sit on hard metal chairs, and I have a rather wide but rather flat and bony butt. And so they found a little princess cushion for me to sit on so that my derriere stays comfortable for the... 14 hours that were sitting there so uh, and they gave me a crown I actually forgot to tell them they actually have a little magnet to put on the door that says princess on board <laughs> so uh, my sponsees have a good time with me and I have a good time with them and I think that's one of the, the gifts of recovery. Um, in May of 1978 I walked into a bar because my father had had a heart attack and my mother wanted some time by herself so all of the siblings scattered. And I walk in that bar with another lady who's rather voluptuous and we walk up to the bar and there's this nice blonde man there with his little vest and his jeans and his shirt rolled, sleeves rolled up and he looked up at me because I'm taller than him.
1: <laughs>
0: and just so we know, that really makes me His higher power. And I never let him forget it. I'm just not that well yet. But anyway, I digress. He looked up at me and he said, Don't I know you from somewhere? Now, in reality, he did. When I was 16, my older sister had moved into a duplex. And my husband-to-be, in his room he lived on the first floor, and my older sister and her roommate lived on the second floor. And he remembered me from all of those years. (laughs) I was in love. (laughs) So, we started dating. And that was quite the event because on our first date, the other half, a 12-pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and myself went down and sat on the riverbank and watched the boats go by. And after he'd finished most of those beers, I had one or two, it was hot, after we finished all those, he informed me that we were going to get married. I just didn't know it yet. And once again, I thought this is the man of my dreams. And so we were off on a relationship. Now this relationship had some unique qualities about it that some of you may also experience. I noticed that the other half never shared from his heart until he was three sheets to the wind, which usually meant he was a part-time bartender. He, you know, did the bar thing till 2.30 in the morning. Toss back a few, several, and then we'd go out and have breakfast together. And that's when he would open his heart to me. And boy, I cherished those times because that's when I felt that I really got to know the real man that I was going to marry. I actually had a name for it. I called it Blue Talk because the unfortunate part of that Blue Talk is that he never remembered a bit of it the next day. Of course, I remembered it and could repeat it verbatim, and bullet-pointed either alphabetically or numerically, whichever he preferred. (laughs) So we go off on this relationship, and I have to tell you what happened at the end of that first date. End of that first date, I go home, and I grew up, and I'm the fourth of five. I'm not the tallest either. I walk, get home from the date, and Mom and Dad had a shotgun house, you know, room after room after room. And they had strict rules about coming in late, turn this light off, lock this door, all those kind of things. And I noticed this glow emanating from the kitchen, which was not supposed to be there. So I walked into the kitchen, and there's my mother and father, huddled over a votive candle, praying. And I thought something terrible had happened. And I I know I was like, Mom, Dad, what happened? What happened? And my mother looked up and she said, Did you know he was divorced before
1: you went out with him?
0: (laughs) And I told my first lie, thanks to the disease, the family disease of alcoholism, I looked right at my mother and father and I said, It's not like I'm marrying the guy. It's just a date. Even though he had just told me and I had bought into it that we were getting married. So we go off on this relationship and we end up tying the knot a couple of years later. Now if you were at that wedding ceremony, it would have been all hearts and flowers and everything would have looked gorgeous. But if you had listened closely, at the end of that when the bells rang, I imagined a voice saying, Ladies and gentlemen, the games are about to begin. (laughs) Because, you know, there were some things he did that I just did not approve of. For one, he was a bar drinker. So three to four nights a week, he was at the bar. In my world, that's not right. The other half should be home, tending the garden, tending to me, tending to work tending to everything but going to a bar. I had figured out by then that he had a drinking problem, and I thought that he just needed me to fix it. And so I used my best skills, some of which you probably have done too, to try to get him to be the kind of person that I thought he should be. And so you can imagine the bottle pouring on top of me and being the fertilizer that helped the wicked witch of the West bloom because I did anything I could think of to keep that guy from drinking I chased him to bars I followed him I called him I used to enjoy calling bars because the bar, you know, bartender would answer the phone and I would say, um, and I have permission to tell you my husband's name, it's Michael or Mike. And I'd call and I'd say, is, is Mike there? And the bartender, you'd hear him muffle the phone and say, Mark, are you here? <laughs> and I'd hear the back half of that conversation so I knew where he was. Or when he when we had a little houseboat at the time, he'd take the houseboat out and this was way before cell phones We had a ship-to-shore radio, so I would have to talk to him about his drinking ship-to-shore. So the conversation (laughs) was something like, are you drinking over? And he'd say no over, and I'd say liar over, (laughs) knowing that an operator was listening to every single word. But my hope was that I would embarrass him just enough that he would say, oh Pauline, you've embarrassed me enough and I promise that the wicked alcohol will never cross these lips again. That never happened, but it didn't keep me from trying. I tried giving him all the sex he wanted. I tried not giving him sex. I'm a very good lecturer. And so I would lecture him about the evils of alcohol. I would print out articles that I would look up at the library and give them to him. And we would have these long arguments in the middle of the night when he would get home. And then I would ask him, please tell me, what is it I have to do so that you won't drink? And he'd give me my marching orders. And I don't know about you, but you give a good pre on a set of marching orders and let me tell you, I was on it. They were done, you know, boom, 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 boom. And then I'd go back and I'd say, I did what you asked me to do. Like you're supposed to stop drinking now, but it never worked. And that went on for 14 years of that kind of behavior. One time he informed me at about three o'clock in the morning that um, he was not gone as much as I said he was gone. And I said, well, sweetheart, I'll, I'll just keep track of it. (laughs) So I got a little calendar with those blank squares on it (laughs) and four different color marking
1: pens.
0: (laughs) And my first thing that I would write down on each date that he went to the bar was the first time that he called. And then there'd be the second time that either he called me or I called him, followed by the third time that the same thing happened. And then the fourth colored pen would indicate what time he actually came home. I collected data for a month. And after a month, I made an appointment to talk to my other half so that I could present this. Oh, if only PowerPoint had been invented way back then.
1: <laughs> I
0: could have had lovely graphs and charts with percentages. It would have been so exciting. <laughs> but I showed him the colored chart, the data, and I said, this really is the truth of the matter, sweetheart. You are gone three to four times a week, and you know, wow wah, 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 wah. And I said, and so, based on all this, you should stop drinking because you're not at home. And he looked at me and said, "Whatever."
1: <laughs>
0: now, in those words, "whatever," I thought that meant he was going to stop. <laughs> and he didn't. And you know when you need to kick stuff up a notch, us pre-Alanon's are pretty darn good at kicking stuff up a notch. So, uh, I'm a follower I followed him to the bar. I'd circle the bar. And um, let me tell you about a typical night at our house. A typical night would involve him being at the bar and about 10.30, quarter to 11. In my book is the time when people go to bed. At least that was in my world. And so I would climb the steps and lay down in bed. And then I'd start to listen for each car that went down the street. And every time a car went down the street, I hopped up out of bed, ran over to the blinds, pulled them open, whacked myself in the nose because I had to stick my face right up to the window, only to see that it was not his car. And so that would go on from about 11 till about two thirty, three 3 o'clock in the morning. And I would work up one good mad by the time he got home because I'd been up and down. I'd lay down in bed and go, now, Pauline, you shouldn't do this. Just lay down and go to sleep. Don't let him him do what he needs to do. And with that next car, I'd be up and at the Venetian blinds again. So then he'd come home at 2.30 and just want to crash, basically belch and fart and sleep. (laughs) Isn't that what an alcoholic does after they've been out all night? But you know, I'm very good with drama and I'd lay in bed with my arms folded, you know, virginally somehow, some way. And I'd wait for him to lay down and then I'd say something like, "Well, you said you were going to be home at 7. Here it is, 2:38." seconds, and you're just now walking in the door. And off we'd go. I was the one who started those arguments three to four nights a week when he came home. And then there'd usually reach some point where I'd get very dramatic, and I would grab my pillow, and I would announce that I was going to sleep downstairs, and I'd stomp to the bottom of the steps. And then I'd stand there and wait. Because I thought, certainly, he's not going to let his other half not sleep with him. And I'd wait a few minutes and tap my finger and count very quickly. And then I'd stomp back upstairs, only to find him sound asleep. And I'd get right on top of him. And then I'd yell, don't you care that I'm sleeping downstairs? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Ladies and gentlemen, round two is about to begin. <laughs> and that's the way our life went for a very, very, very long time. I was the one who kick-started those things because he didn't. He just wanted to sleep. But I felt that that was my way. My, getting that anger out was my way of trying to control something that I didn't know was uncontrollable. I thought I wasn't pretty enough. I thought I wasn't a good enough wife. We weren't able to have children. I thought it was because I wasn't able to have children. I could give you a long laundry list of what I thought was wrong with me that made him drink. Because I just, I knew nothing else. My shame in this disease made me keep it very quiet. I told no one. I'd go to work and I'd paste on that smile and they'd say, how is everything? And I'd say, it's fine. Everything's fine. Michael's fine, thank you. We're fine. Fine, thank you. Just fine. (laughs) And inside I was thinking he's the biggest jerk I've ever laid eyes on and I don't know why I'm lying for him again. But I did. Over and over and over. I was so afraid that if I shared with you what was going on at my home, that you'd think less of me, that you wouldn't understand. Because I thought drunks lived underneath bridges. I just had one that was gussied up. What the heck was I going to do? Well, I I continued to follow him, and um, I have to share one story of, of when I really went off the deep edge. It's cold where I live. It gets cold. Not northeast cold, but it gets cold. And one February, it was uh, below freezing. And at that time, I had hair down to about the middle of my back. And uh, I had started the dance around 11 o'clock. He never came home. I had driven over to the bar and circled it so I knew right where he was so that when he came home, you know, I could give him the 20 questions. How many drinks did you have? And he would answer, two.
1: And then I, of course,
0: would say, liar. And then I'd say, were there girls at the bar? And he would say, no. And I would say, liar. So I had built myself up into a big snit. And about one o'clock in the morning, I just maxed out. And I got up out of bed. And put on that old red velour robe where half the velour was gone. <laughs> and I had lost the belt, and being a good pre-alanon, God forbid that I spend money on myself. I had substituted a piece of jute. I tied that jute up. I put on my dark glasses so that no one would recognize me.
1: <laughs>
0: and my very stylish, perfect for below freezing, blue flip-flops <laughs> and got in the car thinking I was only going to scope the turf out to make sure he was still there but you know I got to that bar and I don't know what happened all of a sudden the door car door opened I go over to the bar doors and this place had doors kind of like a western saloon <laughs> I walked in those doors, and I stopped. Yes, there's a new chick in town.
1: Everybody in
0: that bar stopped, turned around, and looked at the babe in the door. Except for one man smoking a cigarette, nursing a beer up at the bar. My guy. So I sidled on up to him, raised myself up to all six one and a quarter, and looked down on him and I yelled, Either you leave now, or I'm going to cause a scene. <laughs> It worked. (laughs) Our life was just a mess. It, honest to God, was. The other half uh, had started a business many years before that. And when he started the business, he announced to me that he realized that his drinking was a problem and that he was going to stop drinking. So he did. Now, I didn't know at the time that what I would get to enjoy was living with a dry drunk for a period of time in that, in that span. And that was quite an interesting event, to have a pre-Alanon with a dry drunk because he wasn't gone, yet their behaviors were still there, and my best techniques were getting me nowhere. And I remember one night we were out at a restaurant, and I looked across at him, and I said, Sweetie, why don't you go ahead and have a cocktail? <laughs> Calm you down a little bit. Now, I'm not the one who started him drinking again, but he eventually did start drinking again. And things spiraled down to the point where he lost the business. We lost our home, the cars, the money. Everything went all gone. So we wind up moving to a little house where we are now in Newport, Kentucky. And Newport has a reputation of being it had. In earlier years of being uh, filled with mobsters and gangsters and all kinds of gambling and shady, shady things that went on. So we moved to Newport, Kentucky. And the other half is still driving all the way out to the bar to drink. My best response to that was to go buy a dress for the funeral. So I went shopping because I was convinced and was hoping, frankly, that he would be in some sort of one car accident on the way home and no one would die, but I would look darn good at the funeral and I was gonna be prepared. And I already had a list started of how I was gonna spend the life insurance money. (laughs) Because what I had started to do after all that happened was to talk myself out of being in love with my husband. And my behavior was beginning to support that. I traveled sometimes for a living and besides trying to track him down long distance, calling bars long distance from various states that I would be in, I'd usually find myself at the bar myself, just scoping the turf, seeing if I still had it in me to catch somebody, flirting outrageously, not doing anything inappropriate as far as, you know, going over the dark, to the dark side of that. But I was emotionally unfaithful to my husband. So we're in Newport, and life is, is not good. I am uh, I'm a mess. I am just a mess. I will never forget, I went to work one day, and um, I was working on a special project, and, and two um, team members were sitting behind me. And all of a sudden, I started crying uncontrollably, and they said, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know what's wrong, but I have to tell you what's going on in my life. And I shared a little bit because I was still so filled with shame that I couldn't share a whole lot. But I shared the suburbs of the disease that was going on, even though I didn't know that that's what it was. I just shared the outskirts of it because I was in such pain. We lived in that house for a while, and he's still going out to the bar, and I am getting worse and worse. And finally, I got to a point where I thought, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And that had been my mantra throughout all of those years that he was drinking. When he'd come home and we'd get into a big fight, I'd look him in the face, I'd get the finger out, I'd shake it, and I'd say, you know, I don't have to put up with this crap from you. And it just so happened that when we moved to that little house in in Newport, I was soon going to be blessed with a lot of gifts from my higher power that I didn't recognize until much later on in the program. After we'd been there about a month, six weeks, the other half had gone out to the bar, I was doing my Venetian blind thing, laying in the bed in tears, crying. And I remember, as much as I remember being in this specific moment, I remember a voice saying in my head to me, you know, Pauline, you don't need to put up with this anymore. It was at that moment that the message moved from my head, where it had nested for years, to my heart. I lay down and went to sleep. He came home. There was no 2.30 in the morning fight. I waited a couple of days till he was in a better spot. I sat down with him and I said, Michael, I love you with my whole heart, but I can no longer live like this. I don't know what has to change. I, I don't know what the solution or cure is, but this is, I can't do it anymore. And I left it go. Came home from work two weeks later, and the other half says, do you have that employee assistance card? Which being a good pre-Alan, I'm always prepared. I had it handy and ready to whip out at a moment. Notice, I whipped out the card. He called. He goes and gets, and I always love this, an alcohol assessment. He goes and takes the test. Didn't even know there was one to see if he's alcoholic. He comes home and announces that, yes, he has been certified that he's an alcoholic. (laughs) What I'm thinking is, buddy, I've been telling you, you are drunk for 14 plus years. It's just, you know, you couldn't hear it from me, but you're going to hear it from somebody else. So he goes off to recovery and he comes home from his recovery meetings one night at the hospital and announces that I have to go. Well, it's a whole new ball game now because, you know, I started to look like a bobble headed doll because I don't really have the problem, sweetie, you do. This is your mess, not mine. It's your, you know, if they think this is a disease, they can have at it. And I got all attitudinal and I'm not going, I'm not going. No, 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 no. And I went. (laughs) And, you know, there was another gift that I got that night. I sat in that room at the hospital. And although it was filled with, with mothers and fathers of alcoholics and drug addicts, um, spouses, partners of all shapes and sizes. What I was blessed to hear that night was the similarities in our stories, not the differences. I was able to hear their pain and see their tears and go, oh my God, that's me. And in one, in, in one same feeling, I was so grateful to know that there were other people out there who understand. And in the very same moment, I was so filled with fear of what all that meant. And when we drove home in the car that night, I cried uncontrollably. And Michael said, Sweetheart, what's the matter? Why are you crying so much? And I said, Sweetie, I didn't realize until tonight how crazy I'd become. In that hour meeting, not that I saw all of it, but what I heard from those people and in my own sharing was some of the things that I had done to, my, to the man that I said I loved that were completely inappropriate, talking condescendingly, being sarcastic, holding back, all the things that I, that I did. And that, I, I just saw them. And that meeting became my personal bottom. So I continued to go to that hospital group thinking that that would be all that, there, that I needed to do. Six weeks and life would go on. And then they said, you need to go to Al-Anon. Well, of course I got attitudinal again and the head started bobbing. But I went to that first meeting of Al-Anon, I'll never forget on a Tuesday night at home. And I sat in that meeting and what I so enjoyed And what truly ticked me off at the same time was the laughter that I heard in those rooms. I so wanted to be able to laugh about something again. Not use sarcasm, laugh. I so wanted what you had. And in the same moment, I was so scared of it too. I just didn't know if I had it in me. And what I heard at that meeting that I hear in a lot of them is keep coming back. And so I went to another meeting and then a second meeting became a third, a third became a fourth, and so on and so forth. And so for me, my my very first, my photo in my head of that early recovery is my higher power giving me the gift of knowing that it was me that didn't have to put up with it anymore. That he could do what he wanted to do. That I got—I I could do something different. And the other gift that I got at that moment when I went to that first hospital meeting was learning how to listen for the similarities. Because what I found for me, if I make myself unique, then I'm not the same. Now, I believe I'm special as I believe each of you are special, but I don't think in the rooms of recovery that I'm any more unique than anybody else. From a newcomer to somebody who's been here forever and a day because it's the disease that we all respond to. I chose to respond to it my way and I'm sure each of you have your own way that you did too. So I'm in recovery and the rest of my story is about the gifts that I've gotten because it it just absolutely overwhelms me when I think of what this program has given to me that has changed me and started to put the pieces of Pauline back together I was very scattered I was all about being in your business but I didn't even know how to be in my business and so the gifts that you all gave me were the steps the gift that I got from that was to focus on me and to see what I needed to do and what my part was in situations and life events. And so I started to work through those steps, first by myself, because I was not going to get a sponsor, because then I'd have to talk, and I didn't want to do that. So I, I held back for about a year, and then I asked a person to be my sponsor, who is nothing like me other than she's just about an inch shorter than me. Our politics are not in common. She drives terrible, her taste in earrings. I mean, things that I tell her, we laugh about it. But what I saw in her was an inner beauty that I so wanted to see if that could exist in me. And so another gift that I got in the program was a gift of intimacy. I never learned how to be intimate in a relationship. I knew how to con you. I knew how to maneuver you. I knew how to steer a conversation to get get it to where I needed to go. But I had not stopped to be honest, open, and willing in a relationship. And my sponsor offers me direction to help me be honest, open, and willing. And the fruit of that enabled me to be more intimate in those sort of relationships. And the offshoot of that was that I got to have lots more intimate relationships with the other half, with other people that I've met in the program, with coworkers, with friends. I got to practice the principles in all my affairs, which was a real blessing to get to do. I have to look at my cheat sheet because I I made some notes today because I was forgetful. Um, Another gift that I got early on was the gift of letting go. Prior to the program, picture me as an octopus with lots of tentacles coming out of me and my tentacles were tightly wrapped around the alcoholic. He could hardly move without me knowing where he was, but my tentacles reached out and wrapped around lots of things that weren't mine. My tentacle would come out if you were in the grocery store and you were in the 12 and under lane with more than 12 items.
1: My tentacles
0: would wrap around you if you littered. My tentacles came out if you parked in a handicapped slot and you didn't have a sticker. Any excuse that I could find, the tentacles came out because I would rather focus on you than focus on me. And there is still an octopus in here. There is still one in here. I have to fess up, and I was telling the girls, I take a bus to work every day. And some people do not park in the appropriate park and ride area. (laughs) And I will tell you, I have composed a little note to slip on their car in my head millions of times. Prior to the program when I used to leave notes on
1: cars, (laughs) I got
0: so tired of writing them that I actually have a booklet of them that I can just put cross checks on and then leave it on your car. (laughs) Now, about eight years ago, my sponsees found that packet of notes (laughs) and they asked me frequently Is that book of notes still there? And yes, there are a few sheets still in there. I'm just not that well. (laughs) But the good news is, is that I take them out and I imagine what I would mark, but I never get out a pencil or a pen because what my sponsor has taught me to do to release the tentacle is that I can think anything And I think a lot. (laughs) But I don't take action on things that I feel are going to be inappropriate. And I'm learning more today about what's appropriate and what's not. So I still carry the sheets in my car and maybe someday I'll pitch them. I don't know. It's been 14 years and they're still there. (laughs) Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, Another gift that this program gave me, a powerful one, and I hope it's one that you have too, is the gift of choice. I did not know when I got into this program that I had choices. Prior to the program, the other half had a little boat, and we took it out once, and we had stopped at a little marina to get something to drink, and I stayed in the boat, and the boat started to sink and there were people on the dock calling down to me and saying, You're sinking. And I looked up and I said, I know. (laughs) And then the other half came over and he said, You're sinking. Get out of the boat. And I said, Do you think I should? (laughs) I didn't know that I had choices. I honestly didn't. I thought that there was a prescribed way for me to behave the way I had been brought up. And that's what I needed to do. A lot of my recovery journey has been about outgrowing my upbringing and learning to make some better choices in my life. And so I'm grateful today to have the gift of choice. Now, life gives me lots of opportunities, and I don't always make the best choices. I don't. I'm human, but at least today I know that in most instances, there's option A, option B, or something else. I just need to kind of think for a moment or reach out and talk to somebody. Novel idea, duh, that I never thought of before, and if I thought of it, I wouldn't have talked to you because my shame would have kept me from talking to you and God forbid that you think I'm less than anything anything less than perfect so I was grateful to get the gift of choice another one that was very powerful is the gift of humor prior to the program um, I consider myself pretty much an expert on sarcasm I'm very good at putting it in and turning it slowly or quickly And that was one of the tools that I used on the other half. I was extremely sarcastic and very condescending. And when we got into the program and I heard the laughter in the rooms, I so wanted that in my life. And what helped me with that was to just stay in the moment and enjoy what is there. I'll never forget one Christmas, I needed one strand of lights for the Christmas tree And I had one $100 bill. This was right after we got into the program. Sent the other half off to Walgreens. Y'all have Walgreens down here, drugstore? Sent him off. I said, get one strand of clear lights. Should be about 2 dollars 5 I gave him a $100 bill. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) He comes home. Of course, you know, if one is good, two is better. So we have two strands of lights. All this other stuff. And the thing that he shows me, that he is so proud of for $19.99, was a sign that said, ho, ho, ho. (laughs) He spent six hours mounting this sign in inclement weather on our house. Now, there was a side of me that was furious. Money was extremely tight when I first got into the program. But there was another side of me that was laughing hysterically at all the energy he was putting into this. And now I told you the history of Newport. For every Christmas party that we had that season, he got infinite pleasure out of saying, just look for the flashing hose. (laughs) And that's where the party is. So, it was worth the $19.99 of joy that it brought to us. Prior to the program, it would have been about marching him back to Walgreens, giving him a lecture about the money, trying to make him feel bad, and instead what I learned to do is laugh. What a powerful, powerful gift. I just can't take myself that seriously anymore. Because it isn't all about me. It just is not. And today I'm grateful that I have the ability, when I'm spiritually fit, to chuckle, giggle, and outright laugh at myself. I find myself very entertaining. (laughs) This little house that we moved in in Newport, we rented. And uh, we're blessed in that this house has a beautiful view of the skyline of Cincinnati. I live right across from Cincinnati, Ohio. And... uh, Um, the landlord came and said, someone wants to buy the house. And we were pretty sorrowful because we liked that house. And we had our first Tradition One meeting, the other half and I. We sat down and decided to be honest with the landlord and do it as a team. No one was going to talk behind anybody or try to work it this way. We sat down with the landlord and we said, we have no money. He's unemployed. I'm working, bankruptcy, you know, yada, yada, yada. And the landlord said, let me see what I can do. Two weeks later, a bank called us and gave us a loan. I don't know how many of you get called from a bank <laughs> without ever filling out a form to be told that you're gonna get a loan. I was never so grateful to get a loan in my life as I was to get a loan for that little house. And the gift that I get from that is that if I'm willing in the relationship to put to practice the traditions in that case, in our communication and working together, things work better. I just need to be a willing participant. So I like the traditions. I'm a big tradition bumper back home. About five years into recovery, um, I started not to feel real good. I got depressed. And what my sponsor and I figured out is that I was starting to feel. Now, prior to the program, I spent a lot of time either ignoring my feelings, just it doesn't exist, repressing them, pushing them down so that they wouldn't come out, or if feelings came toward me, I held them at bay. I spent a lot of time trying to keep me at what, what passed for my even keel. And all of a sudden, I'm severely depressed and don't know what to do. Hmm. The, other ha- or the, the sponsor suggested that I have a good cry. And you know what? I was scared to death to cry. Because I was afraid that if I started crying, I wouldn't stop. I was afraid if I let that anger out that was in me still, that I might hurt somebody. I was afraid if I allowed happiness or joy into my life, that I didn't deserve it. And I was so afraid to feel. But what a powerful thing that is to allow myself to be a human feeling. And what I know today is I get to ride the wave of feelings. You know, and they're going to change a lot. I used to feel that I had to act on every feeling that came into my consciousness I needed to do something with or fix or or something. And today what I've learned to do is visually put myself on a surfboard and just ride the wave of it because this too shall pass. You know, I can't experience the really good if I haven't experienced the really sad. I have to have a little bit of both. And today I'm willing to take that on knowing that I might cry, that I might get angry, that I might laugh, I might stomp, I might cuss. I could have a variety of responses, but what I know today is, is that I can just ride the wave and it'll be okay. About seven years into the program, I got complacent. I decided I I might not need you anymore. And it just so happened at that time that work gave me an opportunity to totally change my my work habits. And so it gave me a convenient excuse to not go to meetings for two weeks. I'm a three to four meeting a week person. I have a home group that meets on Friday night in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. And I have three foster home groups. I do a little bit of service in all of them. But I decided that, eh, I'll take a two week siesta from recovery. Well, you talk about somebody that was crisp. I was a little crisp at the end of two weeks, and it just so happened at the end of two weeks that the other half and I ended up in a Barnes-Noble-type bookstore. And I am standing in the feng shui section trying to be spiritual. Have you ever tried to be spiritual when you're not? <laughs> doesn't work. But I'm trying to catch spirituality from the feng shui book, And out of the corner of my eye, I notice a woman. She's messing in a carton of calendars. The calendars fall over. The carton falls over. She leaves the scene of the crime. (laughs) I close the book, and I walk over to her, raise myself up, look down at her, and I said, Ma'am? You spilled that carton of calendars. I'll be happy to help you pick them up. And I gently lead her back over (laughs) to where the evidence is. I scrunch down and start putting the calendars back into the carton. But she has chosen to remain standing and not join me. In my packet of lectures is the responsibility lecture, number 201. (laughs) I pulled out the responsibility lecture and from my scrunched position, informed her that if everyone in the world took responsibility for their mistakes, what a more wonderful world it would be. (laughs) And would you like to help clean up the mess, ma'am, that you made? So she stoops down, puts the calendars in the box, in the carton, I go back, I had of course tucked the cover in the book so I would know exactly where I was when I got back, opened that book up again and went, oh my gosh, who do I think I am? All of a sudden, I am the keeper and fixer and saver of bookstores. I close the book and I go racing through the bookstore trying to find her and I'm going up and down the aisles trying to find her to make amends to her. And the other half sees me and he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to make amends. I'm trying to make amends. And then I couldn't find her. So I said, Michael, come on. We have to go to a Walmart or some other big store so I can be nice to people.
1: So we go to the store
0: and the usual meter and greeter, I just go right in there and I say, Let me help you. I'm getting carts for people, I'm inviting them in. And you know what gift I got from that? The gift I learned from that is that I'm a human being. And I am never going to do this program perfectly. What I'm going to do is do it to the best of my ability. And there's gonna be times, many of them, when I'm gonna mess up. And when I mess up, thank goodness, there's a tool in the program that allows me to make amends if I have the willingness to do it. And I'm so grateful to have that gift because when I mess up or think, oh, you've got these years in the program, Pauline, you should be better or different. I'm just a human and I'm not always going to do it well. About five years ago, um, my mother and Michael's mother were both ill. My mother had been in a nursing home for many years and um, Mike's mom had Alzheimer's and ended up in a nursing facility. And I got a really neat gift from that. I allowed myself, I was taught really, how to nurture her, not having children. Maybe I missed the nurturing class somewhere along in life. Maybe I did, I don't know. But I had never had that opportunity. And I was able to nurture and care for my mother-in-law. And I dearly loved her. We were extremely close. I'm the only daughter-in-law, so we were real tight. But I got to nurture and care for her. And then on the day she died, I was the one blessed to be there. Just me. Holding her hand, stroking her hair. God's good in my life. Real good. That same year... We had the al Convention up home, and I just happened to be the voice that year. So I was, you know, out there. And uh, a woman came up to me at that convention, and she said, um, I'm in from Canada, and I have written a book about grieving family members when, you know, your brother or sister or mom or dad died. And I feel compelled to give you this book. The weekend before that convention, the doctor had informed us that my mother basically had chosen not to live and that she was, was going to go into hospice. My God's real good, because I got that book. I didn't know that I, how soon I'd be needing it. So mom's in the nursing facility, and come Thanksgiving morning of that same year, the phone rings at 1 o'clock in the morning, and they say, Come over because your mom's going to die. So all of the family goes over and mom kind of pulls through a little bit and I opt to stay and everybody else goes home. So when we did the trade-off in the morning, I go home on Thanksgiving morning and I'm, I'm laying down to get a little sleep because I'd been up all night. And the phone rings after I'd been in bed for a couple of hours and I pick up the phone because I thought you know it was about my mom. And it's a man, actually from Atlanta, Georgia, in AA asking me to do something in service that very weekend could I fill in for somebody and I said no I couldn't and I started crying and he said what's the matter and I said my mom's you know in in hospice and they don't think she's going to make it through the day and he says guess where I've been I said where he said my wife and I were just over at my mother-in-law's house because she's sick as well want to talk God's good Because in that moment, we had a half-hour conversation that allowed me to talk to somebody and reason things out without me even knowing that I needed it. And I desperately needed to talk to somebody and reason that out. So mom died. And uh, uh, we went through all those kind of things that you go through when when somebody passes and... uh, moved on in the program and then last fall my father-in-law is real sick. Being the only daughter-in-law I get to take care of him too. And what that gift that I got from that relationship was to be able to say true goodbyes to somebody who was there because his cancer allowed him to stay, you know, there (laughs) with me and I got to say goodbye to him and he got to say goodbye to me. Powerful, powerful stuff if I hadn't learned in this room in these rooms the gift of keeping my head where my feet are I would have missed all of those opportunities and so today I frequently have to do checks and go Pauline as soon as I start thinking down the path or projecting I have to go Pauline where are your feet that's where your higher power wants you to be is where your feet are So I try to pay attention to where my feet are today. I think other gifts that I've gotten in this program have have, uh, helped me a lot. I I don't like the gift of fear. I don't like the way some of the gifts that I get come packaged. You know? They're a little rough around the edges. But the gift of fear has strengthened my faith. And I didn't come in this room with a belief in a higher power. I had gotten mad at religions and continued that to be mad at God years before I got into the program. And so when I got here there was no God of my understanding. I wasn't so sure I liked all that God talk that you all had. But I'm one of those people who came who came to and came to believe. That's what happened to me because I caught your faith. I saw it work in your life in the little things that you gave to your higher power and in the big things that you willingly gave to your higher power. I didn't know how to do that. I I was scared to death, always afraid that some shoe would drop and I, I needed to be prepared for whatever shoe dropped. But what you all taught me to do was through fear, I can rely on the higher power. And just let it go. So that's why I have that door stay attitude about the convention, okay, sirah, sirah, because really, it's in my higher powers' hands now. I can't make people register or do all the things that I hope they do. I just have to have faith that it'll be what it's going to be. Um, the gift of anger has been an unusual one to tackle. I get, can easily get afraid of confrontation or get afraid of anger. It's not one of my favorite emotions. It's probably one of the hardest ones that I have to ride because it stirs me up and gets me twitchy. But what I've learned today is that when I get anger, angry about something, maybe there's a boundary that I need to set. Maybe there's something in me that's happening outside that, that I need to look at. And so if I take the opportunity when I get the gift of anger to look at me first, and that's the hardest part because when I'm angry, it ain't about me looking at me. It's about me looking at you. But if I can remember to look at me, then I can usually find some tool that you all have taught me that I can use to help me ride the wave of anger and just get through to the other side. There are tons and tons of gifts that this program has offered me. Many, many more. Heck, we could be here till, oh, 25 after 11, but we won't. Uh, The program of of Al-Anon has given me so much. The gift of service. I didn't want to go into service. Uh Uh-uh, not me, thank you. I'll just go to those meetings, show up, sit down, take a seat, let somebody else do the stuff, and I'll go home. Until that night when somebody handed me the book, literally just handed me the book and said, you chair. I tried to hand it back. (laughs) And she just said, no. I'm so grateful that she did that because what I learned from that is that it is a wee program. And when I was unsure about what I needed to do when following the meeting guide, I looked at her. And she'd smile and go thumbs up or whisper something that I might consider doing. Those little footsteps into service have steered me into doing other things as well. I've been GR several times. I've done DR, alternate delegate and convention chair. I'm the greeter at my home group. So everybody that comes in passes through a hug from me Too cool best job out there is the greeter I'm telling you and if I hadn't been willing I'd still just be going to those meetings taking a seat feeling good for an hour and then leaving the room but I'm so grateful that somebody had the courage to give me the book and say you can do it I just didn't know that I could so I hope that uh, my gifts continue to grow But the other important thing that I hope I do is that I honor those gifts. You know, if you look up the word honor in the dictionary, it means that you hold something in esteem. So when I get these gifts, what I think my higher power wants me to do is to treasure them and to open them up carefully and not rush through it, to see all aspects of the gifts that I'm given, to enjoy them as I can, to learn and grow from them as I can. Because without that, I'm not going to grow in the program. So uh, my thanks to each and every one of you for giving me the gift of recovery.